Join host Michael G. Cartwright for searching conversations with UND faculty and staff about our common future. On June 19, 1865, word reached the community in Texas that they were free. The following year, these former slaves gathered at the AME Church in Galveston to celebrate the good news of freedom. That occasion became known as Juneteenth. This past June 19th, the president, cabinet, and provost council challenged the campus to live into a new sense of responsibility. Our campus will continue to explore all that this might yet mean, but already we know that it entails being honest with ourselves. In the meantime, each month, our colleague Michael will talk with members of the UND community. Join us, Juneteenth Conversations. We look forward to sharing with you there. Hello, I'm Michael Cartwright, Vice President of University Mission at the University of Indianapolis and host of Juneteenth Conversations podcast. In the previous two episodes, I've discussed the first four chapters of Annette Gordon-Reed's book on Juneteenth with my colleagues in the Office of Equity and Inclusion at the University of Indianapolis. In today's edition of the podcast, we are talking about the fifth and sixth essays and the coda of this brief little book where the author concludes her thoughts about what it means to celebrate freedom on this newest federal holiday that we call Juneteenth. I'm pleased to say that the two of us are going to talk about the first celebration of Juneteenth in addition to wrapping up our conversation about the book. So I wanna welcome my colleague, Jolanda Bean, once again. Uh, She will be reading some of the passages from the book on Juneteenth, as well as some of the text about the university. And along the way, I'll be asking Jolanda uh, to share some of her perspectives about examples that Annette Gordon-Reed uses in her book. So thank you, Jolanda, for helping me. As you know, Annette Gordon-Reed is frank that being Black and being Texan can feel more separate than compatible. Indeed, she begins with the famous passage from the book, The Souls of Black Folk, published in 1903. In that book, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote, one ever feels his Tunis, an American, a Negro, two thoughts, two souls, two unreconciled strivings in one dark body, whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder, end quote. One of the things I like about Annette Gordon-Reed's book is the way she wrestles with her identity as someone who grew up in the state of Texas and the two centuries of history that has been written with respect to her her home state's racist past. As she spells out, this history is layered with overlapping sequences. There is the heritage of independence that marks the Lone Star State which has that conspicuous history of being an independent republic before it was admitted to the Union in 1845. The Constitution of the Republic of Texas made it clear that white supremacy and not equality was the basis for governance. There is also the heritage of the Confederacy since Texas was one of the states that succeeded from the United States in 1861. Such inheritances create question marks about what it might mean for someone to be a black Texan 
as Annette Gordon-Reed was raised to be. She recalls one of her earliest memories, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and other video experiences, including watching the movie about the Alamo. When it comes to questions of slavery and race, this is not a topic about which people have to write a revisionist history. Indeed, as she states, Race is right there in the documents, official and personnel. It would take a concerted effort not to consider and analyze the subject. And I realized that evasion is exactly what happened in many of the textbooks that Americans use in their school, social studies, and history classes. Annette Gordon-Reed takes seriously that human beings seem to need myths and legends, as well as history. The more we get to know about subjects, the more likely we are to be able to see beyond the myths in the context of historical accuracy. For example, she discusses the work of Dumas Malone, the historian who edited the multi-volume study of Thomas Jefferson over a 40-year period. During that time, Dumas Malone recognized that he was dealing with a far more complex person than he first thought. I think most readers of the last two essays in Annette Gordon-Reed's book are probably like me, in that we are fascinated by the way the author explores the myths about figures like William Barrett Travis, including the story about the origin of the song, The Yellow Rose of Texas. Annette Gordon-Reed stands free of any need to defend such narratives. She says, I am also interested in the legacies of the past. I don't feel hostage to other conceptions of what Texas should mean to me or accept that Texas, quote, belongs, unquote, exclusively to any group of people who lived or lived there. Another one of the things that I appreciated about the fifth essay is how Annette Gordon-Reed patiently spells out the logic of the famous cornerstone speech of Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. Um, I'm going to read the paragraph that Gordon Reed quotes from her book. Alexander Stevens wrote, the new constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions related to our peculiar institution. African slavery as it exists among us, the proper status of the Negro in our civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. Jefferson and his forecast had anticipated this as the rock upon which the old union would split. He was right. What was conjecture with him is now accomplished fact. But whether he comprehended the great truth upon which that rock stood and stands may be doubted. The prevailing ideas entertained by him and most of the leading states from the time of the formation of the old constitution were that the enslavement of the African was a violation of the laws of nature, that it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically. It was an evil they knew not well how to deal with. But the general opinion of the men of that day was that somehow or other in the order of providence, the institution of slavery would pass away. Those ideas, however, were fundamentally wrong. 
They rested upon the assumption of the equality of races. This was an error. It was a sandy foundation and the government built upon it fell when the storm came and the wind blew. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, the government of the Confederacy, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth, end quote. I must say that it's uh, an embarrassment to even have to read those words and trust that people who are hearing this podcast don't think that those are the convictions that I hold. But it is useful, it seems to me, to have Annette Gordon-Reed quote that extended text to make explicit just how unnuanced the commitment to white supremacy was in the old Confederacy. Jolanda, I'm curious what you make of this passage. I grew up in Arkansas, the slave state that entered the Union at the same time that your own home state of Michigan entered as a free state. I know folks who like to claim that this statement by the vice president of the Confederacy is not duly representative of, quote, Southern values, end quote. They want to believe that it's somehow exceptional and perhaps taken out of context. But I have to say, I don't find that convincing. How do you hear this as someone from Detroit? I think in Northern states like Detroit, people might not 100% believe in that. However, they still believe in it but they do it in a very different way. So to say that one thing about growing up in Detroit and I think other big cities is for the most part, you're still segregated. Mm-hmm. For the most part, when people, when blacks moved into Detroit, you still have that white flight. <laughs> so I think that many people might not in the Northern states say, no, we don't believe that. We are different. We all live together, but underneath it all, in many cases, it's one of those things that I think many people do believe, and that's how they showed it. They might not be as blunt as the Southern words, but they still felt exactly the same. Thanks, Jolanda, for sharing your thoughts about this disturbing passage from an unapologetic advocate of slavery who advocated the doctrine of white supremacy. Another part of the book that I found intriguing was Annette Gordon-Reed's discussion of the efforts to build an infrastructure to educate African-Americans. The Freedmen's Bureau, which was founded in the late 1860s, is another one of the features of Texan history that Hoosiers don't have. The Freedmen's Bureau was a Northern governmental administration implemented in the South. The overall failure of the reconstruction to fulfill the promise of a South we made with Black Southerners participating as equal citizens is well known. But positive things did happen, particularly the building of schools to educate free Blacks. Annette Gordon-Reed 
calls attention to some of the ways that she can see this in her family's history. She tells the story of the contributions of George Ruby, the white native New Yorker who built the Freedmen's Bureau school system. And even more significant, the inspiring story of Norris Wright Cuny, who led the Union League in Galveston, Texas. This is another place where the history of what transpired in Texas simply does not map onto the world of the Hoosier state. There never was such an educational intervention of this kind in Indiana, although there were several private schools that were created for African-Americans. In Perry Township, which is where the University of Indianapolis is located, there were two segregated schools in the late 19th century with capacity for about 20 students. Crispus Attic School was founded in 1927 as part of the Jim Crow era. And later, Father Boniface Hardin created the venture known as Martin Center, now known as Martin University. Here we have conceived there is a real contrast where Annette Gordon-Reed recognizes the way that Galveston, Texas was progressive and cosmopolitan, historians of Indianapolis spell out a different legacy, one that is recalcitrant and sometimes harsh, requiring members of the African-American community to engage in what became known as, quote, polite protest, end quote. And that Gordon Reed spells out one of the famous critiques of Texas state history, which specifically condemned as radical and overreaching the idea that in the wake of the Civil War, freed Blacks should have been treated as if the words about equality actually meant something. Annette Gordon-Reed indicates that she finds it difficult to read the historiography of this era, which is full of allusions to Black inferiority. As she concedes, there were plenty of reasons to criticize the flawed nature of these efforts to build institutions to educate African-Americans. The Freeman world did not always make the right choices. And the men who ran it sometimes fell short of the standards of the radical sensibilities of the late 20th and early 20th centuries. For the most part, however, the commissioners tried to uphold the borough's mandate and the presence of hostile groups of people who had lost a war and were implacably opposed to the transformation of their economic and social lives, which has been built on a chattel slavery. I found it helpful for Annette Gordon-Reed to spell out the ways in which the Freedmen's Bureau was controversial at that time, because it helps us to see the ways in which patterns north of the Mason-Dixon line were not unlike what Texans experienced during the period that the Freedmen's Bureau was in operation. And I think one of the challenges is to figure out how the intention to offer an integrated public education in the 21st century still reflects the implicit patterns of segregation that were part of the 20th century. Reading these passages, also reminds me of a scene conjured from the past that was evoked by an encounter that took place almost 20 years ago when I was present for a conversation between former Provost Everett Freeman and a distinguished scholar who had been 
an undergraduate at Georgetown University in the 1960s. Everett Freeman had been a janitor's assistant in the library at Georgetown at that time. Regina Wolfe had been an honors student in the late 1960s. Given the respective roles, Provost Freeman and Professor Wolfe agreed that it was quite likely that the two of them had passed one another on more than one occasion in that particular space during those years. But they never rubbed elbows given the prerogatives of privilege and the fact that he would never have been able to be a student at Georgetown University at that time and place. For me, that is a poignant image for the lingering effects of segregation in higher education. And not to put too fine a point on the matter, some of our listeners will recall that UND's first African-American male to serve on the president's cabinet from 2002 to 2005 had an adopted surname, Freeman. Freeman, that's a name that's irretrievably connected with enslavement. I don't know whether Everett's family adopted that name before the Civil War or after the Civil War. What I can say is that the decision to take that name is itself a response to emancipation. And I suspect that very few people realize that that's where Everett's last name came from. Annette Gordon-Reed also reminds readers that there are other forms of inheritance. She talks about her mother's family and she tells the story of her father's grandfather who often went to Galveston to work. And Annette Gordon-Reed narrates her own experience of growing up in the small town of Conroe, Texas. When she goes back to the town to visit, she finds a mural celebrating her own achievements as an internationally acclaimed historian of the early American Republic. She also mentions the location of Juneteenth celebrations in the place called Emancipation Park in the city of Houston and elsewhere in Texas. I'm wondering, Jolanda, what memories you have of your family celebrating freedom and or emancipation in the community where you grew up. Did you celebrate uh, July 4th? You know, I we celebrated July 4th, but I consider it more of a celebration as any other get together with family members, like for Labor Day, Memorial Day. So I don't really think that we really celebrated what July 4th meant. I think for us, it was just another holiday together with family. On Juneteenth, once again, as a family, we did not celebrate it. I know that in Detroit, I was lucky enough to have the Charles Wright African American Museum. And so for many holidays and special occasions, my mother is like, we only live like three blocks away. We went there and then we celebrate it there. But I really never really consider it more of a celebration. Now that I'm thinking about it in this way, I think it's just something that we did, just part of, you know, just what you do every year. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Drawing on her Pulitzer Prize winning biographical study of Thomas Jefferson's relationship with the enslaved woman, Sally Hemings, Annette Gordon Reed calls attention to the difference between what Jefferson sometimes said when he was talking about slavery 
and what he actually did when dealing with the practical details of people's lives. For example, Jefferson said and wrote many things about slavery that he did not put into practice. But he understood that if the slaves who grew up on the plantation at Monticello were going to be able to remain with their family following his death, he would have to take steps to make that happen, such as providing for them in his will. In the three-page coda of her book, Annette Gordon-Reed writes, Abstract notions don't capture why places are worthy of love. I think most faculty and staff at the University of Annapolis who read this book will be able to relate to the author's earnest attempt to wrestle with the complications of her personal history in relation to the Juneteenth holiday. Texas is at one and the same time the site of Annette Gordon-Reed's earliest experiences of racial prejudice, but she also says, It was also the place where I learned to think that people could and should try in whatever way they can to make life better for others alive today and those to come. Annette Gordon-Reed's admirable effort to offer balanced reflections about the African-American experience in the context of the history of Texas offers insights that I think are very helpful to those of us who have the privilege of working at the University of Indianapolis. After all, this is a place where we have invested a large part of our lives from day to day. And this is the place where we hope students can learn to engage the challenges associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. We know, of course, that for at least some of our students living on campus is a primary experience for engaging questions of racial, ethnic, and cultural differences. I'm grateful for the wisdom of Annette Gordon-Reed's book, especially with respect to thinking about the places where we encounter these issues. Thomas Jefferson is but one of many Americans who was tempted to think that the only way to deal with the problem of racial strife was to separate Blacks and whites. After all, how could Blacks love a country that did not love them, as evidenced by the way the country has treated them? Presidents Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, among others, all looked to colonization efforts in other places like the country of Liberia as the only kind of workable solution to the problem of slavery. This appears to be the same kind of imagination that captured the earliest generation of Hoosiers as we discussed in episode 10 of this podcast. And I dare say that that kind of thinking is alive and well today in our world too, at least in the general sense of wishing the problem of slavery would simply go away or wishing that the problem of racism would simply go away. But as we know, that is not the only feature of our heritage in Indiana. The stories of the Underground Railroad and the efforts of the abolitionists are also part of this historical record. And our university can also look back to the heritage of those early abolitionists at Hartsville College. President David Shuck, instructor Ellen Countryman, and that intrepid young student Larkin Hauser all were engaged with the issue of slavery and determined to end the practice of slavery that in its time 
was willing to risk political disunion rather than further accommodate the practice. We talked about this just a bit in episode number 11. Perhaps we can create new opportunities for learning more about what that episode in the prehistory of Indiana Central University was. I led a pilgrimage to Hartsville during homecoming in 2016, and I'm in the process of making arrangements to do a second pilgrimage next year. On such occasions, I tell the stories of those who are part of what Wendell Berry has called the convocation of our predecessors. And I remind participants that we have inherited a complicated legacy which includes racism. In our remaining time in this third episode about Annette Gordon-Reed's book, I wanna focus on the implications of Juneteenth for the UND campus. Jolanda, you may recall that the leadership of the university set six goals for ourselves in June of 2020. I'm gonna read those six goals as we think about how we as a university are committed to transformation of the campus. The first goal is to create a dedicated process to increase representation of black professionals, faculty, staff, and administration on campus. Second, to create dedicated programming to recruit, retain, and develop black students through a connected web of scholarships events, and living learning communities, established summer bridge experiences for students of color to transition to college successfully. The third goal is to create greater transparency and increase institutional accountability through data transparency, reports, and metrics relating to progress as it pertains to student retention rates and academic achievement for our Black students. The fourth goal is to empower faculty and staff with specific interventions to help increase student success throughout the academic experience. Fifth, to create dedicated space for black students, faculty and staff on campus to establish a brave space where bias issues can be reviewed discreetly and action can be taken to create a more inclusive, equitable atmosphere. And sixth, to assess our university's cultural competencies and create educational programming that is tied to the development of our community. When I took some time to review these statements earlier this summer, two words stood out for me from this list of six goals. We have said that we want to create dedicated spaces for students to create dedicated processes for faculty and staff. And at the same time, we have stated a firm resolve to assess our cultural competencies and programming, all of which is a shorthand for saying that we aspire to create and sustain the kind of evidence-based interventions that will make the greatest difference on our campus. I'm pleased to see that the authors of the 2020 text on our Juneteenth Declaration focused on the faculty and staff's capacity to be a learning community. Institutionally speaking, that can be quite challenging, but I am convinced that we can do this. As I have meditated on Annette Gordon-Reed's book, I also think that we're going to have to come to grips with our own institutional history 
more than we have to date. And in that respect, I'm very glad that we have had the opportunity to read and reflect on Annette Gordon-Reed's book because it has stimulated my own thinking about the university's history as well as its prehistory, by which I mean the saga of the abolitionists at Hartsville College in the 1850. There is much more to be done, however, and I think the university's experience with international students is a place to begin. Jolanda, as you know, that story begins with E.W. Emery's little booklet, From Mud Walls to College Halls, from 1923. It tells the story of how David Gian Manley came to Indiana Central College from Sierra Leone, Africa to study. During the four years he was in Indiana, beginning in 1919, David Manley flourished. He was a leader on campus almost from the time he arrived, and perhaps only a few people at the time knew that missionaries had given David an English name, Manley, to illustrate his gentlemanlike, humane manner of being. They wanted other people, fellow Americans, to recognize the qualities in this African that they had experienced. Contrary to the usual patterns of colonialism that were operative at that time, the biography published by David's alma mater illustrates the pattern of devolution of leadership. That is, David Manley was being trained in order to take over leadership from whites associated with the missionary endeavors of the United Brethren Church. And that aspiration turns out to have been realized. If you go to the capital of the country of Sierra Leone today, which is named Freetown, you will find plaques and other forms of memorial to the life and work of David Manley. We also know that Manley later served as an educator who helped train administrators from England to serve as administrators of the British colony. All of which is to say that it matters what we know about our past. In this respect, I think we have to adjust our institutional culture a bit. To paraphrase former President Gene Cease, there is a reason why the windshield of an automobile is larger than the rearview mirror. You need to be looking through the windshield to see where you're going. UND's institutional culture has always been forward-looking. And while there have been various examples of this and different styles of that pattern, it has been characteristic feature of virtually all of our most effective leaders. There is another perspective that I think faculty and staff at UND could benefit from adopting. It's called the Sankofa sensibility which has been adapted from stories told by the Bono Adinkra people of West Africa about a bird that has a distinctive way of flying. The word Sankofa is often translated to mean, go back to the past and bring forward that which is useful. The bird is rendered as twisting its beak behind itself in order to bring forth an egg from its back. This second sensibility offers a reminder that there are things that matter that are not immediately in view. You have to be able to look back while moving forward. That is a learned skill. When we take the time to look back, we see some things that are important not to lose sight of. In particular, we honor those ancestors who have shown us the way as well as those leaders 
who taught us the strategies for survival, endurance, and growth. Places do matter. The names of places like Freetown in the former British colony of Sierra Leone matters. Names matter. The name David Manley is an important person in our university's history because he helped to teach his fellow students about the humanity of people of color. And as I have argued on other occasion, the heritage of student leadership and student initiative also matters for faculty and staff of the university as we engage the challenges of the present and future. I always try to remind people that David Manley was the first editor of the student newspaper, The Reflector. Earlier in the 2000s, we had a series of events on campus at which we paid tribute to leaders who had made a difference. Today, there are displays on the second floor of the Switzer Student Center that commemorate the Sankofa Circle of Sages and the Sankofa Circle of Civic Leaders. These displays were designed in consultation with one of UND's graduates, Gilbert Taylor from the class of 1958, who studied Africana cultures and served as a longtime curator of the Christmas Attics Museum here in Indianapolis. These are but two of the important reminders of how we came to be where we are today. In the years to come, I think we are likely to do more of this kind of internal exploration. Michael, tell us a little bit more about the Sankofa displays. They developed, Yolanda, through the work of a uh, special consultation that we had on campus for a period of years in conjunction with one of the grants that I had. Uh, and during those years, we would celebrate uh, a particular leader and his or her contributions to Africana spirituality and later to the civic engagement in the city of Indianapolis. So uh, they developed out of an effort to pay tribute to African-American leaders. And I'm proud to say that they were the first public art examples on campus featuring people of color. That brings me to the most recent chapter of our history. When I think of the 2020-21 academic year, there are a pair of bookends. Last summer began with the Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of the death of George Floyd. And just a few months ago, we celebrated Juneteenth as a university holiday for the first time. Jolanda, when you think about Juneteenth, what are you likely to always remember from this year's celebration? I ask in particular because you are one of the people who was most involved with making the arrangements for the 2020 celebration. And so it may be that you still have nightmares from the work that you did. No, it's all good, all good, Michael. Um, honestly, I was so presently surprised to see around 300 of the UND community, faculty, staff, students, and other people part of the community come to our celebration. It was definitely a joyous occasion. People were having fun, they played basketball, we had dancers, we had musicians, we had DJs. It was just, oh, and alums, I forget, our you amazing UND alums. 
all mm-hmm. came back and just was celebrating. And the icing on the cake, Michael, was yes, um, Dr. Amber Smith and the council decided last year this was going to be a university holiday, but then it became a national holiday a day before. Mm-hmm. So I cannot wait um, for next year to make Juneteenth bigger um, and to celebrate this not only with our African-American community, but the UND community and the Indianapolis community as well. Yeah, I agree. I think it was a very hopeful beginning to something that I think can grow at the table where I was sitting with some alums from the class of 1960, as well as my daughter and wife and my daughter's boyfriend. We were delighted when little four-year-old boy from one of the UND faculty just came over and sat with us and began eating off of my plate. <laughs> we, we were sharing food together. But uh, about that same time, the three-on-three basketball tournament was getting started, and uh, it, was, it was a buzz with lots of activity. So thank you, Jolanda, for sharing your memories of Juneteenth 2021. I trust that this newest tradition of our campus community will reincorporate some of the university's other traditions. As I wrote about in this summer's Mission Matters essay, the three-on-three basketball tournament recalls that old tug of war that was one of the earliest traditions of the university when the sophomores challenged the freshmen to a test of collective strength. In time, as we have more such experiences, we will develop UND-specific traditions of Juneteenth celebration, perhaps even including our own version of Annette Gordon-Reed's family story of hot tamales served at St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Conroe, Texas. Perhaps the three-on-three basketball tournament that took place on June 17, 2021, will be one of those traditions that folks on the future look back at this time and place and remember fondly. I trust that we will continue to remind one another of all the ways that black lives do matter on a campus where we remember not only that the Declaration of Independence asserts the hope of equality for all people, but that the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments to the U.S. Constitution specify for all Americans that the Emancipation Proclamation ordered for the Confederacy. We still have a lot to learn, and that is another reason why Juneteenth is important. I recently had the opportunity to visit friends in the state of North Carolina where some have chosen to emphasize the phrase, y'all means all, y'all means all. One of the things that I do think marks off the campus culture of our university at its best is our commitment to giving and receiving hospitality with one another. Some of the earliest stories of the university are about laughing and playing with one another. Starting in 1924, the students had the tug of war down at Lick Creek. And afterward, they had what they called the love feast in the evening as they sat around the fire and laughed with one another. Even back in those days, students and faculty liked ice cream whenever they could get it. And there is a story that I find particularly lovely about David Manley being introduced to dessert, 
to this dessert, which until that time he had not experienced as somebody who had grown up in Africa. Knowing that his friends were from Indiana and that they prided themselves on the warmth and authenticity of their hospitality, he later teased them that he had never experienced such cold hospitality as when he was introduced to ice cream. This is the kind of affectionate teasing offered by someone who knew that he was a part of the we. He was an affectionate man from another culture to whom his fellow students looked because he was able to articulate their aspirations for the whole. I would hope that whenever we celebrate Juneteenth, we celebrate the lives of David Manley and others who helped to create the preconditions for the kind of inclusive excellence, even as they struggled with the segregationist regime of Jim Crow in the state of Indiana. Well, that wraps up the 12th of the Juneteenth Conversation podcast. I look forward to serving as one of the co-hosts of this set of UND Conversations about cultivating enriched imaginations for practicing inclusive kindness. In the meantime, I encourage my colleagues on the staff and faculty to continue to build a campus culture of Juneteenth celebration as together we celebrate and embrace our emancipation from mental slavery and our growing capacity to combat racism wherever we encounter it. 